The Crack Podcast is brought to you by Two Dope Queens, a podcast from WMYC Studios. Join Jessica Williams and Phoebe Robinson for stories about sex, romance, race, living in New York, and more. And you can be the first to listen to season three on Spotify for free at spotify.com slash dope queens. Check out all your favorite music on the Spotify mobile app, including my new playlist. Support for the Cracked Podcast comes from Audible, presenting Ponzi Supernova, a six-part Audible original series that sheds new light on Bernie Madoff and the biggest Ponzi scheme in history. The journalist Steve Fishman is going to tell you all sorts of things you never suspected and talk to Madoff himself. You can now listen to Ponzi Supernova for free on Audible or wherever you get podcasts. Hello, the internet, and welcome to another episode of the Cracked Podcast. My name is Jack O'Brien. I'm the editor-in-chief of Cracked, and this week we're taking a trip through the glorious comedic mind of Dana Gould, hilarious Simpsons and Parks and Rec writer and comedic actor and stand-up-er. I've been a fan of his podcast for a while, and that's a genre of podcast we do every once in a while here have on hosts of other podcasts we like a lot and talk to them about the stuff they usually talk about on their podcast. We did the one with the dollop, my favorite murder. It's one of those ones. Dana's podcast is just a couple of sort of long form, interesting conversations between Dana and his friends. He also does a couple pages of summary of a historical event as written by Dana Gould, one of the best comedy writers of the past 25 years. So yeah, Daniel, Michael, and I interview him. Michael is in rare form. Dana's actually a big fan of a theme we come back to a lot on this show, the idea that history tends to happen by accident. And as a result of unintended consequences, we like to imagine history as being the result of perfectly orchestrated plots and careful planning. That's where conspiracy theories come from. But when you look close enough beyond the narratives people place on top of events, they're usually the result of drunk people running into each other dick first. We'll also talk about the firing of Jim Comey by President Trump, because we recorded this conversation the Wednesday morning after that happened. And we were still in that sort of can't quite get our minds around it space. The 60% of the country that doesn't approve of President Trump were in on Wednesday and find ourselves in quite a bit these days. Perhaps you're still there in the future. But yeah, heading into this presidency, I had heard an expert on the CIA and FBI. Uh, He'd written a history of both. And he said the one person standing between America and, you know, a corrupt dictatorship was James Comey. He was like, you Democrats may not like him right now, but you could do a lot worse for someone protecting you and seeking out corruption. Because, yeah, I guess he didn't think Trump would have the balls. Trump always has the balls, friend. Either way, I have no sense of what we will find crazy in the future anymore and what will have been dwarfed by some fresh outrage. Perhaps Trump has been caught masturbating to his daughter because he was doing it right in the Rose Garden during a press conference. 
Anyways, my apologies. If you're over the Comey thing, you are in the future. I can't compete with that. Uh, and then we get a couple great famous people stories. Dana has been doing stand-up since the 80s, and he's been a successful comedy writer and actor for a long time. So he's friends with all sorts of famous people. And one of the great joys of his show is getting to hear a great comedic mind shoot the shit about famous people and... You know, he has privileged information about them because he's known them and he's hung out with a lot of them. He managed to be like one of the most down to earth comedy people I've met in my time at Cracked while also doing the L.A. thing where you refer to people by their nickname or just their first name, like uh, James L. Brooks, the famous film producer and writer, director of As Good As It Gets. He calls him Jim Brooks. When we're talking about Parks and Rec, he refers to Chris and Amy. Uh, I think that's fair. When I talk to crack fans and they ask me what Dan O'Brien's like, I don't say, well, you know, I hired Dan O'Brien right out of college and Dan O'Brien has a real sexual charisma you just can't fake. I'd say I hired Daniel out of college. Dan prefers Daniel. little pro tip for you fans out there. I actually, during the interview, couldn't think of Chris Pratt's name. I kept thinking Chris Pine, Chris Evans, Chris Hemsworth, Brown, Chris Christie. I always get Chris Pratt and Chris Christie screwed up. But yeah, that's one of the downsides of doing the famous person thing and just referring to famous people by their first name. Uh, other than that, not a whole lot you need to know about this one. People who miss my music picks, I'm going to put another playlist up on Spotify called Maylist, colon, exit music. Got a lot of Kendrick on there. People keep asking me on Twitter what I think of the new album. I think it's a great work of art. And I still don't think he's topped Good Kid, Mad City, which isn't saying that much because I don't think anyone's topped Good Kid, Mad City. I think it's the best album of the past, however many years it's been since it came out. Anyways, search Maylist, all one word, colon exit music. I'll give you a week to listen to it, and then I'll talk about the songs at the end of next week's episode in the footnotes. That has nothing to do with our conversation with Dana Gould, which I hope you enjoy. I'll be back at the end. We are joined in studio by... Michael Swaim and Daniel O'Brien. Hi, guys. Hello. Howdy. Thanks for Hi. joining us. And comedy legend Dana Gould. Uh, uh, legend. <laughs> Sorry. Jack, comedy. he specifically asked you not it's to call like him It's like meeting that. a magic tree. <laughs> <laughs> On the Dana Gould Hour, you talk about rules of meeting famous person is the first thing you're supposed to do is mention an obscure thing that, yes. that they've done. So, Michael, take it away. Well, Gex was good. <laughs> I like Gex. <laughs> Remember Gex, everyone out there in Radioland? Oh, Gex. One, thank you for putting me in the uh, <laughs> stratum of famous people. That is Scott Alexander's rule from uh, Larry Karaszewski and Scott Alexander, the screenwriters mm -hmm. who wrote People oh. vs. Larry Flynn, People vs. O.J. Simpson, People vs. Anybody. They wrote it. <laughs> Ed Wood, Scott met Jerry Lewis and asked Jerry Lewis about a very obscure movie that he was involved in. I forget the name of it. And Jerry, like, lit up. And that's, you find this weird, obscure thing. Yeah, Gex was a video game that I was the voice of and wrote the repartee for with my friend Rob Cohen. Rob and I shared an office on the Ben Stiller show. That's where we met. Ooh. He was dating Jenny Groffalo, who was my friend's boyfriend, and then we shared an office, and then we became very close friends. 
that we did Gex together. We did a show together called Super Adventure Team. And now he's become a very talented director, and he's actually directing the last four episodes of the season of my little show on IFC called Stand Against Evil. We Woo. actually had dinner last night. We were going over the scripts, and it's great. Rob's one of those great relationships where we just kind of grew together and keep working together. It's great. He's a, he's awesome. a great guy. I performed his wedding ceremony. Wow. wow. Because That's his, close. His Yes, because his wife knew that if he were to make a break for it, it would be to go find me. So she said, <laughs> I want you right there. You're my wall. And, yeah, exactly. And there was a moment where we locked eyes. Yeah. <laughs> Stay right where you are. And for the benefit of Jack and Dan, who masquerade as nerds professionally, but are not. <laughs> the notable thing about Gex, I played through a bunch of it out. before this episode. Was there any pushback on how edgy and filthy the well, humor yeah, Oh, yeah, no, there was my favorite joke did not get on. There was one level in the first game where he was going down a river on a raft and he was being attacked by crabs. (laughs) And we had a joke in the voice of Johnny Carson at the time, which was, I haven't seen this many crabs since Elkie Summer's hot tub party. (laughs) And the lawyers kicked that one back. Yeah. Gex was uh, huge for me. I think for another comedy nerd like Michael, it's a really strange intersection that rarely happened for me growing up where it's like, I like video games and I like comedy and rarely will I get the two of them in the same package so having a game that I could play for hours while also being entertained and like getting that comedy part of my brain scratched was like Oh, it can be both things. Yeah, and way before that had been done very much. Like, now you have Portal and comedians writing scripts for games. It's the first I'm aware of where they let a comedy writer just have at it. And it seems pretty unfiltered. Yeah, they were No, they were were really great to work with. I had a lot of fun doing it. Inevitably, when I go on the road, on average, once a week, somebody comes by with a Gex game for me to sign, which is always funny. That's why they're always so damn expensive. There was a great story that Rob was in... Canada, where he's from, which he insists is a real country. (laughs) Jury's still out. (laughs) He was in a video game store and they had just come out and he was like, do you have Gex? It's a video game with a gecko called Gex. (laughs) And the guy at the store goes, first of all, it's called Jex. (laughs) (laughs) And it's about a dinosaur. (laughs) You were literally talking to the guy that wrote the game, you idiot. (laughs) But I can't save you 15% on your card. First of all, first of all, it's called checks. <laughs> I can't believe how stupid you are. Dan and I saw the man who invented the GIF format explain that it's GIF, not GIF, and still people call me an idiot every time I pronounce really? it. Really? Yeah. I was well, there too, Michael. Oh, sorry. And, yeah. and sorry, I still Gak. pronounce it GIF. I think one of, one of my Just because of shame, right? Because people will I call you out I just think it's a better it. pronunciation. No, and one of my favorite like nerd GIF is a peanut butter. to happen is the guy who invented it was like, it's GIF, not GIF, and then the next day... Webster's Dictionary came out and was like, listen, motherfucker, we decide how words are said. (laughs) I didn't know that. Wow. They took it away from him and weaponized it. One of my favorite things is the law of unintended consequences will always undo the best laid plans. Are we getting a Trump already, Jack? You said we were going (laughs) to hold off on that. I'll I'll give you another example. In China, the men in China are valued much more than the women in China. And one of the reasons Not like here. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Well, here we have blondes. It's different. (laughs) If you have a child and you have a boy... That boy will get married, and then he and his wife come and live with you, and they're your retirement plan. And if you have a girl, your daughter goes off with her husband, and you're JWL, (laughs) or JWF, you're SOL and JWF. Because population explosion, they said, well, we're going to do this new thing, one-child policy, you only get one child. So people would have girls and leave them. 
steps of orphanages, or worse, in a cold, brutal world where life is cheap. And one of the unintended consequences of that is now there are uh, one available woman for every five or six bachelors, (laughs) and suddenly women are incredibly powerful in China. Right, and it's a population crash now. Yeah, and it's a population crash, and it's a law of supply and demand, where the women go, no, I'm not even going to talk to you if you don't make a million. (laughs) So like women are to me all the time. (laughs) But but, but it's interesting, it's like they didn't, you know, what they didn't set out to make women really value Right, and powerful right. the culture, and uh, they inadvertently did. So there's always something that will come back and bite you in the ass that you can't anticipate. And I think they just relaxed that policy slightly they did. in yes, response they did. to that. Yeah, yeah. That policy is the reason I have a family. <laughs> right. <laughs> you adopted two <laughs> I, Chinese. Three. Uh, three. Yeah. Three. Yeah. Wow. Three. Yeah. Unintended consequence. Well, the problem the is they're going to get married and move away. So that's why I keep that's working. Third time. <laughs> <I'm alive now. laughs> It was on Radio Lab. It might have been another podcast, but there's an interview with an economist who is doing something in Germany, a case... <laughs> Sounds <laughs> ominous, Jack. He's doing a case study about what the ideal population growth is for a island. They made up like a hypothetical island nation. Mm-hmm. And while he was doing this at like some university, a bunch of Chinese economists came by. It was like in the 70s. And he explained this theory to them. And then 10 years later, the guy who he explained it to was the architect of the one child <laughs> policy. So Stanislavski, who invented quote unquote method acting. Where, like, you live as the person and, you know, Daniel Day-Lewis style. Yeah. Famously, like, 20 years into Brando and James Dean and it being really the rage here, came and met with someone who's directing in that style and said, oh, that book was just theoretical. We moved on long ago since yeah. then. It makes you crazy. We don't do that <laughs> no, the, Yeah, the method is actually a terrible school of acting. I agree. I, I hate I, it. When I first moved to Los Angeles, the two big method gurus in Los Angeles were Bill Trailer and Peggy Fury. And Peggy Fury is Sean Penn's teacher. Mm-hmm. And, da, 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 da. and I actually took a class with Bill Trailer. The method doesn't work. It, it takes people <laughs> that are innately introverted and makes them more introverted. Really, what the method aspired to do was what the Meisner method actually gets a better result. Great book called Sandy Meisner on Act. The Meisner method, I think, achieves the goals that the method aspired to. The method is far too intellectual for a purely emotional pursuit, which is acting. So is this the method acting? (laughs) Well, is this the method acting that's like Daniel Day-Lewis sitting on set, like, refusing it? Here's the thing. Daniel Daniel Day-Lewis is crazy. (laughs) You know, Daniel Day-Lewis is to acting what Manute Bowl is to basketball. (laughs) Right. His physical being lends itself to this one pursuit. Don't right. model yourself on that. It's a losing game. I've always been a fan of the minute bowl method of offense in basketball, where you just stand by the basket yeah. and block shots. Be, best way to be a basket, be a praying mantis. <laughs> He's seven foot seven. Yeah. Can he break easily? Because he is like a stick figure. I imagine him shattering like Samuel L. Jackson in a high the hit movie Unbreakable. Incidents yeah. of injury? Career-wide? Um, he managed to get through his career without, like, anything horrifying happening to him. <laughs> I right, think he great. passed away, though, oh. so he didn't last that long. In- Our producer, Brett's only visible reaction the whole show so far was to solemnly nod that Manuco is indeed passed. <laughs> <laughs> it's a shame. I wonder, what what he did in, I wonder what he did in his last minute. <laughs> His dying minute <laughs> When? <laughs> Bowling? I don't know. Hey! Hey! <laughs> 
you talk to some of these people like Daniel Day-Lewis. I've never met him, but they say like Robert De Niro when you meet him is like super boring. Steve Martin as well. I love yeah. that about him. Yeah. Dana Gould. I've it's heard Very boring. Uh, people wish. But yeah, when the camera's on, they go, go, go. Yeah. Well, that's what always amazed me about Steve Martin, especially the demented dentist and uh, Little Shop of Horrors. It's like... You see behind the scenes, and he's like, Hi, I'm Steve Martin. Yes, I'm working on this comedy. And then he could do the thing. Like, I admire that more than, well, he's crazy because he's been living in an alley behind the building. Let's bring him in and hope he... People say that Steve Martin is really boring. I have to say, I've met Steve Martin, and not everything you hear is false. <laughs> so Steve Martin's boring. De Niro's boring. He's not boring. He's just normal. He's yeah. He's yeah. just a normal guy. Right. Right. Like, like, Daniel Day Lewis. I think he crazy as fuck. Yeah, that's uh, you look in his eyes and it's just bats and screaming children. Yeah. I um, become that person. That's yeah. not healthy. I read this great book called You Never Give Me Your Money, which is the story of the Beatles breakup from a psychological point of view. And it's really like a mm. book about divorce. John and Paul had a very codependent relationship. They could not break up until they each met a woman partner that they replaced each other with. Oh, and then they were oh, able wow. to break up. And John, like Lennon famously, like came in. It was like, Yoko and I are one person now. We're John and Yoko. She, right. We can't be apart. It's like, Joker. Well, that's incredibly unhealthy. <laughs> yeah. Pop culture had not evolved that had so much psychological doublespeak in it. But no one could go, then you need to go to a therapist and right. learn how to individuate from each other because this is this is not a healthy relationship. Yeah. <laughs> Terms everyone knows now from magazines, but they yeah. did not yeah. at the time. Yeah, right? they didn't at the time. And at the time, people had this idealized version of love. Is you meet your one and your soulmates and your... No, that's actually not how it works. That's fairy tale. It's same, but that's about as realistic. It's not the things from fairy tales like dragons. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, yeah, well, this is all like, the bachelor shows. I was like, I was just looking for my true love. Not doesn't fake. <laughs> and I thought I'd come to this fake. harem situation where, in a yeah. six week structured period, I would find yeah, them yeah. exactly. <laughs> There was that show had a different name when I was a kid. The whore. <laughs> it was called. <laughs> oh boy. It's so clearly scripted. I felt on the roller coaster that I was finding true love. And I always circle back to finding very dishonest love. I leave The Bachelor watching to the 95 other podcasts that exist <laughs> to, to discuss that. The Bachelor. I, I leave Love of the Bachelor to the other 99.9% of <laughs> right. the human population right. that can't stop watching it. It's like Scientology. I saw the After Bachelor show in passing and Paul F. Tompkins was the guest. I'm like, Paul, what's going on? And they, I hope they're paying you a lot because he's just genuinely going like, yeah, isn't it so great? The drama of The Bachelor. <laughs> no, Paul, no. People love it. Yeah. Yeah, people love it. I can't watch a reality show at all. I go right to a meta level. I'm doing my old act, but mm -hmm. it's it, it comes from a genuine Please. observation. <laughs> You're watching people who aren't actors put into situations created by people who aren't writers. <laughs> and they are second guessing how they think you would like to see them behave <laughs> if that situation was real, but it's not. Right. And that's and before you editing. Are yeah. passively <laughs> observing it. Yeah. You're watching an amateur production of nothing. <laughs> and it's absolutely. like a photo of a drawing <laughs> of a hologram. But speaking of unintended consequences, I feel like now there's a whole generation who was raised on that and now think that that's how human beings act. 
Well, there's a terrible side to that. And the old version of that is like, yeah, we were all raised on movies and the people you met and you fell in love and that was it because you, you never watch the movie a month later when they hate each other. Right. Yeah. <laughs> Somebody didn't flush the toilet or there's, you know, I had a stalker problem mm. years ago. My ears uh, are burning. Over <laughs> I'm right here <laughs> with an over-enthusiastic fan. And I ended up having a meeting with Gavin DeBecker about like just what I had to do. Who's Gavin DeBecker? Uh, he wrote The Stalking Law. Oh, okay. Yeah. Uh, he was the big uh, private security guy, and he wrote a brilliant book called The Gift of Fear. Oh, interesting. And, and it's still an open-door policy. If you have a stalking problem, you just call him up. Call him up. <laughs> come over your house. Yeah. <laughs> He'll come over your house. Uh, and he said a lot of it is because of The Graduate. Because the message of The Graduate is, no, Elaine hates him, but he just pesters her into then, falling in love with him. And then shows up and drags her away from, from her, her own, own wedding. Own yeah, wedding. And be like, oh, see, you just have to pester them. Move to where they live. Follow them around the campus. Yeah, da, yeah. Da, da, da. Here's the thing. I'm a huge apologist for that movie because I actually don't think that was the message and that's why it's a great movie. I thought it was the first movie that was the reverse of that message. We chose as a culture not to believe that because the last Shot. sequence yes, is yeah. what you're saying. It's only a glimpse of They're it. Like, oh. But it's like, look, see, now they have nothing to talk about. About. Right. Now right. credits. You were supposed to get that scene, and no one did. Everyone was like, "That guy seems yeah. cool and determined." <laughs> they were so yeah. They no, you're happy. right. They, they should have. They needed to hang on it a little bit more. Yeah, yeah agree. That one scene. There are certainly still plenty of movies that do perpetuate that stalkerish ideal. Like, yeah. I'm certain I was insufferable to women in high school who didn't want to date me because I was like, no, I saw Say Anything. You're, <laughs> all I need to do is hang out outside your house <laughs> yeah, and then this will be box. fine. Yeah. Play the song that was playing when we first had sex. That is the, <laughs> still the creepiest thing. Like, I, God, it's that is like weird. how wow. fucking gross. Remember? Yeah. Remember, remember, I was inside of you. That's awful. Well, the other weird thing, how that affects people is uh, now uh, kids watch porn before they have sex because mm -hmm. it's ubiquitous. You can't mm -hmm. get away from it. But there's this issue like that you have to educate. You're like, no, women actually don't like to be choked. That's right. not a part of love me. You know, anal, anal sex is not the thing you do. Five minutes into sex. You know, it's like kids have to unlearn that porn is not how this really works. And Playboy actually did a PSA about that with porn stars that they go like, look, this is not how sex is. This is not what it's supposed to be. The adult entertainers or whatever you call them, adult mm -hmm. film actors and actresses were like, no, I really want to do this. I really want to be a part right, of it. Right, sure. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, we've talked to adult entertainers who have just talked about how incredibly uncomfortable the body positions are because, like, you're trying to show all it's your parts camera. to sure. the camera. Yeah. All the positions are, like, not things the human body naturally yeah. does. They all have great names. <laughs> right. yeah. Just or, do a Tennessee horse fly, then uh, <laughs> Pringles can for four minutes, and then— I don't understand the disconnect, though, because you don't watch The Office and go— that's what my job will be like, like <laughs> right. exactly like that. You understand it's a fantasy that's exaggerated, and people just don't get that with the porn. But I think sex porn is like a thing that uh, you don't see or talk about in polite company. So you just assume they're job. telling you the truth right, if because you're a, it's like a secret. Well, right? if you're a kid, that's your only exposure to it. <laughs> right. <laughs> At the same time, when I was in seventh grade, there was an eighth grade kid who told me that he was fisting his girlfriend like that weekend, and I believed like no him. I was like, yeah, yeah, no, yeah, that's probably true. Yeah. Uh, so like I, One of our coworkers, a buddy of his in high school, was like, I nailed this girl so hard her tits turned blue. <laughs> and everyone was like, 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's uh, I've done that too. Yeah, that's a normal thing <laughs> yep. in sex. Sure, I'm learning. <laughs> we didn't have fisting <laughs> back in my day. Yeah, I feel bad. <laughs> All the things I missed out on. It was Jack's eighth grade buddy who invented it, I <laughs> yeah, believe. Yeah. Yeah. After now, sure as a kid, if you lost your watch, it's because the band <laughs> broke. <laughs> Drones and fisting, I think, are the two things. Yeah, those this are the new two generation things, yeah. is really <laughs> outside of that Kids same country. <laughs> TV antennas. <laughs> you briefly mentioned writing for the Ben Stiller show and being friends with Janine Garofalo. No, look like, at you dragging us back. Go ahead. No, sorry. You recently had an episode of your podcast where you were talking talking to, I'm drawing a blank on his name, but the guy you referred to as like the Forrest Gump of like, yeah, the Kevin, past. Yeah, Kevin Fitzgerald. Yeah. And Kevin Fitzgerald? Kevin Can we please <laughs> move Funny you on? should mention that. <laughs> Funny you should mention that. <laughs> but I feel like you have been there for most of the things that like comedy nerds like us care about. <laughs> uh-huh. like, you, and, and I don't want to just let that pass without... Oh. Oh, that giving I'm giving Michael that an I'm, opportunity. That to I'm alt comedy Forrest Gump. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I guess. <laughs> well, one that definitely somehow missed me is my girlfriend and I just finished the office and immediately went on to Parks and Rec because she hadn't seen either, and I filled in that blank. How long were you on Parks and Rec? Just I the just, second season. Just okay, the second I just have been seeing your name pop yeah. up. What was that like? I such guess. a great Standard. season. Such a good season. That was the season where it stopped being about an idea, which was the innate lethargy of bureaucracy, <laughs> even in a small town setting, right? Mm-hmm. And became about a group of people. And a lot of that came from Amy and from Chris, really knowing sure. who their characters were and and pushing at the walls of their characters. And then the rest of the show sort of followed suit. Donna's figured out, uh, Jerry's figured out, and in season one, they are just like silent background yeah. props. Yeah, but I am of the belief that the show originally was about bureaucracy. Like Nick's character was... Uh, there are these guys, and this was at the sort of the beginning of the Tea Party movement, yeah. that hate government so much that they get into government just to do nothing. That was what wow. Rom was about. I don't and think then, if I associated him with just the buzzword Tea Party, I could have right. liked him, and I love him so much. Well, right, because, because, because he stopped being about that idea and became right. uh, Ron, you know. Yeah. 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 Differentiable, individual yeah. set of characteristics. Yeah. It's, that show will, will always stick in my brain because— I wonder how many other shows that could have been great we might have lost because they weren't given the amount of time that Parks and Rec was given. That happened. It really scares me as someone who makes shows on the internet and hopes to one day break out of this horrible internet box (laughs) one day that, like... Thanks to all our fans. Tired of making so much money? (laughs) (laughs) Pulling down that Gex money. (laughs) Uh, It's Jex money. (laughs) Oh, first of all, all, it's Jex money. (laughs) I wish people could see the face you're making. (laughs) It's every GameStop employee. Yeah, yeah. It's the guy from the uh, Cambridge Sci-Fi Fantasy Bookstore in Harvard square. It was this <laughs> Tasty guy. ref for someone out yeah. there. <laughs> yeah. yeah, it is. Yeah. He was this weird dude that had some sort of physical abnormality where his... My ears are burning. Uh, yeah, his, <laughs> that's the his, abnormality. His, <laughs> his head and his body occupied equal mass. 
Oh, wow. <laughs> that was a very okay. nice clinical way of yeah. describing that. Yeah. Uh, if, you, if you cut his head off and put them on a scale, it would balance <laughs> like the justice scale of the Supreme Court. And he had a special van and, and everything to, to move around. And he wore, <laughs> he wore a big fedora all the time. I was like, don't worry, people are looking at you. Don't worry about it. <laughs> <laughs> You're not going by unnoticed. Uh, and we'd see his car. Like, you yeah. know, I knew him really well. And, uh, his bumper sticker said, he had like, beam me up, Scotty, there's no intelligent life here. Yeah, that's a classic. And, uh, <laughs> make mine Heinlein. Nice! Nice! That's awesome! This man must have been getting so much money! <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> One day I was in the store. Just, I used to work at the Harvard bookstore. I did not go to Harvard, but I did work at the bookstore. This is 1983, and I remember it. Clear as a bell. <laughs> You're so impressed by yourself right now. <laughs> <laughs> because of what he said was so sure. bizarre that yeah. even at, at 19 years old, I was like, what? <laughs> uh, he's talking to somebody and he goes, well, they say that uh, meteor showers are certainly are going to obliterate the planet in the next 20 years. So my suggestion would be to read as much science fiction and fantasy as you can. <laughs> it was like his entire life. And I kind of have deep love for him. It's like, oh, you find your thing. You yeah. Have your, you have your little foxhole. A stranger in a strange land. Yeah. That could be um, our masthead. The end of the world thing. Right. <laughs> it wasn't even do whatever I'm sure you enjoy. He's dead. Yeah. I'm sure he's dead. No. Oh, you don't I'm know. Sure whatever, I'm sure whatever physical oh, anomaly boy. gave him the same shadow as the number eight, he has also probably killed him. I'm now imagining he has holes in the center of his head and body, like yeah. the number eight. Yeah. So he probably is dead. As a woman with two fake boobs lying on her side. That's what it right. looked like. My favorite thing from that season of Parks and Rec was Duke Silver. Yes. Which, uh, yeah. And Tom's green card marriage, yeah. Tom's green card marriage, right. Uh, they counterbalance each other. And Chris living in a landfill. Chris living in a pit for a while. Yeah, yes. living in a pit. The only joke I really remember that was mine was that I named Duke's first <laughs> album, which was Memories of Now. <laughs> <laughs> and then Mike Scully from The Simpsons, which is how I got the job. His name was Duke Silver, and his second album was called Hi-Ho Duke. I, yeah, that was my favorite. I just saw that episode. That's Mike Scully. That's, that's Mike Hi-Ho, comma, Duke, and he's riding. <laughs> I see a lot of overlap with Simpsons and Parks and Recreation in terms of the expanse of that world that's built and the characters. Is that like an intentional thing? Is that something that you and Mike Scully brought or? One, it's just the necessity of having that so many stories and of having that show so brilliantly cast. Mm -hmm. That cast is so great and letting them occupy that world. That's really uh, Mike Schur and Greg letting people do their jobs. I can speak with more authority about my own show. Mm -hmm. Sure. Stand Against Evil. I originally hoped Nick Offerman was going to play the lead in it. Uh, he was uh, not doing series, and then I got really lucky. Yeah, I got John. John. Yeah, I John got John really, like, Fantastic. oh, you're the guy. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Oh, great. <laughs> this is going to be easy. He's so wonderful. Uh, yeah. yeah. He, he comes to play. Yeah. He's got his glove oiled, and he comes to play. <laughs> and the pitch for Stand Against Evil, just it, it's when you were talking about how the idea for it came to you, you had written a short that was – if your dad existed in a horror movie. Yeah, basically. what if my dad was Buffy the Vampire Slayer? And, <laughs> and it was based on a joke that my brothers and I used to do. Like, you know, I grew up watching horror movies. And literally, like, this is a joke when I'm, like, 10. We would joke that if our dad was one of the pilots trying to shoot King Kong off the Empire State Building— <laughs> 
that he would break formation and go fly over and get the score of the game <laughs> and then come back and tell everybody the score and then maybe shoot and then go back and check the game. <laughs> it's not that he doesn't believe that the Kongs really just doesn't care. Yeah. They'll shoot huh? Yeah. This sucker won't go down. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, it's 4-3, bottom of the six. <laughs> so that was just this weird joke that we used to do. And, you know, if my dad had to fight monsters, just didn't care. Right. Uh, it was originally going to be John Ennis and I as exterminators in a small town, but we exterminated monsters. And it was just like a digital thing. I w was literally having lunch with Pete Aronson from IFC, who's just a friend of mine who wasn't a showbiz lunch. And he just said, you should write a funny X-Files. And I said, I just did. It's so weird you say that. I literally <laughs> just did. And I pitched it to him and he went, well... We don't like that. <laughs> but we like A, B, C, D, E. And I went, oh, well, hang on. Let me pull it apart and put it back together differently. And I said, you know, I'll call. I'll come in next week. And I went away and refigured it and went in a week later and pitched it. And he went, great. We just bought it nice. in the room and <laughs> bought the script great. in the room. <laughs> That's yeah, awesome. and then the, the way IFC works is I then wrote all of the scripts. I hired mm -hmm. a couple people and we wrote the first season. Mm -hmm. And then instead of making a pilot, they just see the scripts and they go, okay, this is your first season. And then they decide whether or not to make it from sure. that stage. And they did. So it was uh, very weird. But the point that I was going to make specific to John McGinley, and this is what we we're talking about with Nick Offerman and Chris and, and all of those uh, brilliant people, is I had the character of Stan Miller, who's the lead in my show, in my head. And it was my dad. It's my dad. Like, I know who this guy is on paper. Mm -hmm. And then when it went to series, was I, I need a real act. I mean, I, I'm an actor, but I'm not a – that's not what I can do. Mm -hmm. Or so I was told. <laughs> <laughs> also, I, I was told that officially, <laughs> but they were correct. Kind of odd to try and inhabit the mental space of your own dad also. No, it's – Not for you? It's oh. Effort, it's effortless. <laughs> Easy it's for effortless. you. Okay. Yeah, no, it's – but it was just the makeup. They didn't want to lead in prosthetics. Uh, and I don't argue that. And they wanted to realize <laughs> – it's great. I agree with them. You sound 50% convinced. Yeah. <laughs> I believe like after your death, a digital version will leak where you've reshot it. <laughs> no, well, the other, thing is I would have, the other thing is I would have died because oh, running, right. oh. running the show is exhausting. Right. Running the show and carrying the show I'm sure, is, yeah. is very exhausting. I had to give the character to John not knowing what he was going to do with it. And what John sure. brought in is not what I saw in my head at all. It's completely different. But smart enough... I've been doing it long enough, especially informed by my experience on Parks and Rec specifically, let people do their job. Mm -hmm. Let John McGinley do what, the thing that John McGinley does really well. Let Janet Varney do the thing and get out of your own way and get over yourself and let people take it and run with it. And that's what Mike sure did with Parks and Rec, and that's what I aspire to do on Stan. So is there as much improv in Parks and Rec as it feels like there is yeah, when you're watching yeah, it? Yeah. yeah. No, I mean, That's the, scripts, really fun about the scripts were written. I mean, right. it was Of course, of course. It but you like have Herb, where those montages where yeah. it's clearly like, give us another one, give us another yeah, yeah, one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and it, it wasn't like Curb where it's like, you know, you're going to have a meeting and you're going to talk about spaghetti and you, when he's over, right. he's going to sure. go to the yacht club. It's going to say um, cunt three to nine times <laughs> this one. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it, was, it was definitely written. But yeah, again, they're just, they're just really good actors. Like when Rob Lowe came on, I was like, oh, yeah. and it's amazing. <laughs> yeah. I went through the, amazing. I think a lot of viewers had the same experience exact yeah. journey where they're like, really? Oh, no, he's great. Good. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. If I recall, that was the network. I think it was the guy that now runs CNN. Zucker. Zucker. 
Jeff Zucker. Yeah, I think it was Jeff Zucker. It's like, no, Rob Lowe's a TV star. Rob Lowe's a TV star. <laughs> and he was great. Yeah. He was great. He was so good. To go back a little bit, your ability to let go of things and not be precious about ideas, how long did that take you to decades. arrive at that? Yeah, because that seems so decades. difficult. This is someone who is like you need playing to have your failure. dad. You, yeah. need to, you need to have failure, like a ball of knives shoved yeah. up your asshole many times <laughs> before you finally get it. That you're not the greatest thing in the yeah. world mm-hmm. all every, the time. Every writer I know is really passionate about their writing. Yeah. Doesn't well, want to change it. <laughs> yeah. You should work at The Simpsons. Oh, I agree. That will, that will, okay, cure, yeah, that will uh, cure you of that. Yeah. If you think your words are precious, you should not work in television. Right. You yeah. should write novels and self-publish them mm-hmm. because you are a draftsman. Mm-hmm. You're mm-hmm. not even, you know, you're a draftsman writing, working on a blueprint. That's all you're doing. You seem to have a sort of an acute appreciation for how much of inspiration is like accidental stuff that happens after the fact or stuff that you didn't think of in the room. You talked on a recent episode of your show about Seinfeld being greenlit and like the reasons they gave. Oh, yeah, yeah. It had nothing to do with uh, what a genius Jerry Seinfeld was. It was like, we might want this guy to replace Johnny Carson, so let's get him under contract. (laughs) And we'll give him just enough stuff to keep him here. Wow, so the series was like his waiting room, essentially? Absolutely. The the series was the uh, tent stake that they nailed him into the yard with. It was called the Seinfeld Chronicles, and I think he had yeah, like four years. Yeah. They ordered three. Uh, or yeah, four. they were like three, and then and uh, what do I need the Late Show for? Yeah, and then <laughs> yeah, that's how they. Thank you. I believe it was oddly talk about today. Uh, Carl Bernstein from Woodward and Bernstein, who cracked right. Watergate, sure. said uh, all good work is done in defiance of management. And, uh, and, I think and that, that was about Seinfeld. Right? It was it about Seinfeld. Seinfeld. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> he said that about yeah, Seinfeld. It was, a, it was a, yeah. It was about CPO Sharky. Oh, he was a big fan. It's either a Judd Apatow quote or a quote of someone else in a Judd Apatow book. So I don't <laughs> want to misattribute, but. He was talking about making a comedy and specifically how making a drama is like the blueprint and you can afford to be a dictator and rigidly stick to the blueprint. And then he said making a comedy is like building a house around a big tree that's already there and you don't want to fuck up the tree and the tree is Will Ferrell or whatever, you right. know. <laughs> and I actually really love that image. It's Yeah, that's, that's pretty wild. I yeah. never heard that, yeah. My favorite comedy is Dr. Strangelove. Very you know, respectable choice. <laughs> Stanley, yeah, and Stanley Kubrick was a dictator. Yeah, <laughs> right. No doubt about it. There's a story about the making of Eyes Wide Shut where Sidney Pollack is— Also hilarious. —playing pool or something, <laughs> and Tom Cruise comes in. Yeah. And they do it, and they, okay, let's do it again. <laughs> they do, like, six takes, and, and Sidney Pollack, who's also a very talented director, goes— you don't think you got it? <laughs> and, you don't and, say that to Kubrick. And, yeah. and Kubrick said, to, well, you want it perfect, <laughs> yeah. but you can't get comedy perfect. Right. And he just kept doing take after take after take to get as much as he could. Mm-hmm. George C. Scott famously hated his performance in that movie and said, that's not the performance I gave. But yeah. Kubrick would just push him every take until he would break, and then they would use that one, where it was just what George C. Scott thought was too big. Right, right. when they're watching it, they're like, I'm not even acting. Mm. This is the one where I'm just freaking out. Yeah. Right. Yeah. My <laughs> all-time favorite George C. Scott performance. <laughs> really? yeah. in that movie and so he hates much. it. We wrote a behind-the-scenes article that 
had the fact that Kubrick said, okay, we're going to do one that's just freaking out over the top as an acting exercise and we're not going to shoot it and like secretly shot that. Yeah, it makes sense. Yeah. He probably did that more than once. The other weird thing that I know about them, just because I read a lot of stuff about that movie, was that George C. Scott was, you know, he's George C. Scott. He knew what he was doing and fancied himself a great chess player. And knew that Stanley Kubrick played chess. Yeah. And so they played chess on the set, and George C. Scott would, like, labor over a move, and, like, after two hours, make a move. And Kubrick would just look at the board and make a move and just (laughs) crush George C. Scott. (laughs) (laughs) Just like, like, uh, uh, there. George C. Scott was a very skilled chess player, and Kubrick just annihilated him. And that made him respect. He clearly is thinking uh, he has some kind of special Do you feel that humiliation? Now use that in the next take. No, he's not British. Stanley Kubrick's not British. He's not British. He He has like a Brooklyn accent. Yeah, if you want to know how Stanley Kubrick spoke, Peter Sellers is doing Stanley Kubrick in Lolita. I couldn't oh, really? notice you have a very beautiful daughter. <laughs> a very beautiful daughter. Yeah, he's doing Stanley Kubrick. Checkmate, asshole. Now Checkmate. let's run yeah, it again. Yeah. Yeah. I was filming this whole time. The game is in the movie. <laughs> <laughs> uh, just the weird directions in Clocker. Uh, put in the clown nose and uh, rape it with the statue. <laughs> <laughs> the behind-the-scenes documentary of The Shining mm-hmm. really yeah. is surprising because he the he's timeless combination of madness and cocaine. <laughs> <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Yeah, you get the sense that that was going on. Poor Shelley Duvall. Yeah. They say, like, that was a performance of her career. Yeah, Yeah, I don't don't know if (laughs) if it's worth it. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, they literally drove her insane. Yeah, they really did. There are people, I never gave this a lot of thought, but I read more than once, like, the performance of that movie is not Jack Nicholson, it's Shelley Duvall. Yeah. Oh, that great, was actually the yeah. movie where Jack Nicholson became a parody of himself. Like That's famously, when Jack Nicholson became that. <laughs> <laughs> and she's just a footnote for that movie. Whenever anyone talks about it, they're like, Kubrick, what a genius. Jack Nicholson, what a genius. And she's like, there are a bunch of fucking animals running around <laughs> driving me crazy. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. yeah, she's the spoke to that wheel or yeah. the axle to that wheel. This episode of The Crack Podcast is sponsored by ZipRecruiter. Are you hiring? If so, you probably know how hard it can be to find the right candidate. You have to individually post your job to as many job boards as you can and then manually read through each cover letter and resume like some kind of dope. Thankfully, ZipRecruiter does all that work for you. On ZipRecruiter, you can post your job to over 100 job sites with just a single click. Then their powerful technology matches the right people to your job. That's why ZipRecruiter is different. They don't depend on candidates finding you. It finds them. In fact, over 80% of jobs posted on ZipRecruiter get a qualified candidate in just 24 hours. Come on, let fancy robots do the heavy lifting for you. And if you ever have any questions, they're definitely not robotic support staff. Yes, they're actually human. We'll help you out. So find out today why ZipRecruiter's been used by businesses of all sizes to find the most qualified job candidates with immediate results. And right now, my listeners can post their jobs to ZipRecruiter for free. Yes, free. Go to ZipRecruiter.com slash cracked. That's ZipRecruiter.com slash cracked. The Crack Podcast is also sponsored today by Casper, the obsessively engineered mattress sold at a shockingly fair price. The Casper mattress was developed by a bunch of scientists who created the perfect memory foam sleeping surface so it has just the right sink and just the right bounce. So yeah, throw away your old spring mattress that seems like 
something you'd read in an article on Cracked about ancient torture devices, and find out why Casper has an average of 4.8 stars after over 20,000 reviews. You'll get $50 towards any mattress purchase by visiting casper.com slash cracked and using our offer code cracked at checkout. And you can try Casper in your home for 100 nights risk-free. If you don't love it, they'll pick it up and refund everything. Once again, that's casper.com slash cracked and use cracked at checkout for $50 off any mattress plus free shipping both ways in the U.S. and Canada. Hey, look at you, Canada. Uh, Terms and conditions apply. Thanks, Casper. So speaking of Bernstein, we're recording this the day after James Comey was fired. It's really more of a Woodward thing, Jack. <laughs> <laughs> what uh, what are your thoughts <laughs> on? I, I guess I think my America's question on is, its way to becoming great again. <laughs> I'm very happy with all of it. <laughs> my question is: Wow, like, he's a psychopath. We had no idea. <laughs> How dumb do you think they think we are? <laughs> is the question I, that I, I keep running into? I spoke to a friend of mine this morning who I'm fortunately having dinner with tonight, and this was a long-planned dinner. He's a political consultant. He's on Meet the Press a lot. He knows a lot of these people, you know, and he's a Republican. <laughs> and he said this morning, you know, people say the president's evil. The president's crazy. I keep telling him, it can be both. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, it's like, yeah, we're getting uh, a nice blend yeah. of those two. What I find is the president inflicts his psyche upon the nation. Mm-hmm. And... You know, the 10 most tumultuous years in the latter half of the 20th century were 1964 to 1974. Not coincidental, both of the presidents that occupied the White House in that time were out of their fucking minds. (laughs) Lyndon Johnson and Richard Nixon were both, in different ways, barking mad. Brett Johnson, just delightful. Endless anecdotes. Yeah. Yeah. Insane. If he was in any other profession, he would like end up a vagrant. He would be like, what the fuck is with that guy? Yeah, yeah. He would have been arrested (laughs) almost immediately. Out of his, you know, all the hubris of Trump, but unlike Trump, an incredibly brilliant legislator. Sure. Uh, You know, Trump seems to be a combination of all the bad aspects of great men and none of the good aspects. You know, it's like, he has Nixon's paranoia without Nixon's skill. It's like the $100 man. We yeah. can't rebuild him. We yeah. don't have the technology. Yeah. You know, nothing that Donald Trump does is a surprise if you read the personality traits of malignant narcissism. I know that they are stunned that people are angry about this because he thought it was a good idea. Yeah. So yeah. how could people think something else? It's not that narcissists don't value you. They're not aware of you as a concept. Supposedly, right. you know? they internally did not anticipate such a blowback right. on the comedy. Because dismissal. he's like, how can it's anyone? Nuts. How can anyone be mad? I'm the only person who's real. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> yes. How can all these <laughs> yes. holog- these holograms are so mad at me? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Or, or just like these people are just here to reflect my needs. That's why narcissists can't take in criticism. It goes against their definition of themselves. Yeah. If you criticize them, it's an existential death. Yeah. I guess that's what I've been most struck by is their surprise at the blowback and the fact that it's been leaked by White House aides. They expected that the Democrats couldn't possibly criticize them because they had said in the past yeah. 
that they yeah. wanted. Oh, yeah. They had <laughs> criticized <laughs> yeah. uh, Comey in the past. And it's just like such transparent. They like, were George C. Scott. Yeah. yeah. Making right. a move and being like, we got this. We've <laughs> yeah. every angle. I love chess. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Stephen King tweeted today, uh, barking mad. And dumb as dirt. Yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah. It's the stupidity and it's the obviousness of their insidiousness that really drives me crazy because it's so exhausting keeping up with everything. And I wish they would try just a little bit harder to lie to me in a clever way. How about a reach around? Convincing yeah. cover story. <laughs> a little bit yeah. more respect for me <laughs> when you lie. It's so obvious that, like, I have to go to another protest today and like I had stuff to do <laughs> but today. But he's used to the apprentice audience, yeah. right? Like he does come from that reality TV world and it means a lot to him that he knows that audience and gets good ratings in that world. So he knows the plot building blocks have to be very simple and straightforward. Or WWE. Yeah. This is yeah. like yeah. the presidency as plotted by professional yeah. wrestling yeah. writers. Yeah, like, I worry Who we're all fans of. Yeah. <laughs> I don't agree with Mitch McConnell or Paul Ryan, but they're undoubtedly sane adults. <laughs> I have very different views yeah. of the role of government than they do. But when they go, oh, I think everything's fine. Like, no. I mean, people forget. Watergate wouldn't have happened. The Democrats were in charge of the Senate and the House. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You know, right now you still have the Republicans in charge of the House and the Senate. I think midterms are going to be right. mean to them. Yeah. Well, with the only people yeah. that could fuck this up are the Democrats. Whew! All right. <laughs> the question to me now is... <laughs> they seem competent. Yeah. Without even claiming like, oh, I know he did it or whatever... There's enough there to investigate, and then they're actively trying to stop the investigation by any means necessary. Yeah. The question to me is just, is our system broken enough now, media and the whole shebang, that he'll just steamroll that through and get away with it, and we'll just never, ever, ever know what happened. It still seems entirely possible. There's a chance, yeah. yeah. Well, it's so funny. People that support Trump have a beautiful linear line of thinking, which is he's done well, he's mm -hmm. rich, <laughs> and he doesn't take bullshit, so he'll be a good president. Yeah. Because he's rich and he doesn't take bullshit. And it's hard to argue that. It's hard to argue for nuance to mm -hmm. somebody that doesn't think it exists. But when you turn it around at them and go, yes, clearly the reason he fires everybody that gets close to the center of this investigation and the reason he won't release his taxes, because he has nothing to hide. Right. Yeah, no, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Clearly he's innocent. <laughs> and then they go, no, it's, it's complicated. It's right. complicated. Oh, oh, now it has to be now complicated. Right. Right. <laughs> yeah. That part's complicated. Yeah. Do you really think that I believe you when you say, and when you put in the letter, although I'm glad you told me I didn't do anything. You are six years old. Yes. You are six years old. Thank you for telling me. Three times, repeatedly. Yeah. I appreciate the fact that you think I'm the most awesome of <laughs> superheroes. And just for the record, you said I was six foot six. Those are your words. So right. I, I'm that tall. You said I was taller than you, James yeah. Comey. Yeah. I know you handed me the election, but that was a week ago. <laughs> what have you done since? And you guys saw Lavrov, the Russian minister, this morning, right? Going yeah. like, oh, really? Oh, James Comey was fired? I didn't hear. <laughs> That's very interesting. All right, I'm going to go have a secret meeting with your president now. Because he's standing there having to wait. And, of course, they're pelting him with, like, tell us the thing. <laughs> and he just eventually goes, what? James Comey was fired? Oh, uh, I didn't know that. Who's like, this? I, as an obvious yeah. 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 <laughs> yeah. And then is escorted into a private room, which the Russian media was allowed into, but the American media was not. Really? Everything's fine. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> TASS, the Russian media was allowed to take photos of the meeting, but no American media was allowed in. Mm -hmm. Bizarre. The it sad is. thing is, the sad thing is, for a lot of people, if Trump was led into the center of town on a dog leash by Vladimir Putin. 
and they lowered the American flag and shit on it, <laughs> and raised the Russian flag, and then strangled an eagle. Yeah. And people would go, America! <laughs> there is nothing they can do. Right, because I think a lot of people that voted this. for him, they don't like his personality. So no, I'm worried they're already the voting that, in spite of that. Right, but I think that there are people that there is quite literally nothing he can do. There's yeah. quite literally That's nothing that can understand. happen yeah. for them to abandon their belief system. I think one of the other confusing you, things about this is that, because a lot of people who are in support of him are saying, oh, he's such a great businessman, look at what he's accomplished. When did America switch on like corporate business people being our universal bad guys? They were our bad guys for so long. We always hated but it's also blonde, not, rich, popular well, guys. I guess part was, of the argument is if you even, have the money, you don't need the money, so lobbyists can't. They're not a corollary. It's like... He's not running a business. Right. He yeah. was a great demolitions expert. He'll make a stirring orthodontist. <laughs> no, there's completely different disciplines. You can't run the government by a business, as you can see, in the way that you've run the government. Right. It's completely abysmal. I just feel like pop culturally, big, rich business blonde men have been our go-to bad guys. It was like, oh, this is really easy. Karate Kid, we, we hate the yeah, that's true. The blonde fit guy. We always hate businessmen. We always <laughs> like the little guy. Other yeah. than the brief period in the 80s with Jordan Jacko and stuff like that. <laughs> no, but you fucking asshole. <laughs> yes! Bringing it around. Great callback. Yeah. But I think that... But, <laughs> Dreed is Jid. <laughs> but I also... That's amazing. Dreed is Jid. Wow. Tweeting that later. <laughs> you know, I look at it comedy. Like, I was always... A, when Dice Clay broke, I was so perplexed by it because I don't think there really was an example of that before. No, the comedian's not the guy that starts the fight and wins the fight. The comedian's the guy that jokes his way out of the fight. Yeah, right. <laughs> I don't understand. I call them sweatpants comics. Mm -hmm. The cut, muscular, swaggering stand-up comic with you, his yeah. baseball hat on. They all have publicity pictures like they're getting ready to punch like. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's like when, when did I, like macho jerk? Yeah, comedy, right. the hybrid know? rock star. Yeah, yeah. Oh and God. I just this comedian fucks. <laughs> yeah. I bet he's very funny then. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. But it's just that school of comedy. People and and I'm saying it's wrong. I don't get it. That lends itself to politics. Like people like that tough. I'm not gonna fuck around. It's like. I'm going to punch my way out of this problem. And a lot of problems you can't, you, you know, yeah. I'm going to punch my way out of cancer. No, you're not. <laughs> We've noticed just in, in our audience, I've worked at Cracked for 11 years. And we've noticed that like when we started it, there was an idea that selling out was a bad thing. And that idea has completely gone away. There's no such thing as selling no stigma out now. To that. Yeah, yeah, there's no yeah. selling out. Yeah, it's just like, yeah, that's great for your brand. Yeah, how is this on brand? Yeah. yeah, it's strange. Yeah. Like every indie band, no matter how serious their lyrics, would love to get a check from Gatorade for the yeah. use right. of their song. Yeah. yeah, no one cares. Yeah, they aspire to <laughs> yeah. get on the Apple iTunes commercial because, or iPhone commercial yeah. because yeah. it is going to make them very successful and everybody wants to be famous. There was, a, I think it was a Nissan ad or something. It was a commercial. And this is three months ago. But the song on the commercial was Gigantic by the Pixies. Yes. That's nuts. Yeah. And I think someone told them, do you know what that song is about? Because <laughs> yeah. I never saw that commercial again. Yeah. And it's like, about... Uh, a giant black cock. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and like, how did this get 
on air. <laughs> but also just the whole Pixies ethos. Like the one that blew my mind is waking up one day and seeing Bob Dylan driving a fucking SUV yeah. down a beautiful shot of the desert talking yeah. about SUVs. I can't believe it. Yep. Yeah, but Bob Dylan wins in the end. He yeah. does he whatever what he's the fuck doing. he wants. Yeah. Yeah. He's Dylan. like, this is a oh, I still love him. whatever. Yeah. Yeah. Fuck it. It's a comment on it. But I do think... I, I think that's was, a damn fine SUV. <laughs> <laughs> it, was, it, was, it was made in America by American people. It was like, this is a, this is right. It was that was a triangle. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. yeah. And, and he's all about that. He's sure. all about people celebrating the people that fuck him over. The sure. people that are for the Republican health care plan are the people that are going to get thrown off it. Question is how big the cognitive dissonance is that you talked yeah. about, where it's like, I have four brothers and a sister and two parents, and they all voted for Trump. And their and taxes enough, are going yeah. up, and my taxes are going down. And you think even after, <laughs> even crazy. after these things impact them in real ways, they it will know. not change their opinion. No, period. they no. don't see it. They'll blame it's Obama. Weird. It's like I said, you could you could wipe your ass with the American flag right. and they scream America. Twelve years from now, Obama's still yeah. Yeah. haunting us. Yeah. Absolutely, <laughs> absolutely. Because every time we get furious, as if we're the liberal elite, mm. the stakes we get higher do. for them to stick with Trump because they sure. fucking love when we get angry. Like the reaction today is why they love Trump. It's yeah. not like hurting their appreciation of yeah. Trump. There's a picture I just saw. Meme is this guy, you know, some Chevy suburban or whatever, and the, mm. the sticker is like it was covered with like crazy right wing stickers. It was just like, America, July 4th, 1776 to January 9th, 2008. Mm -hmm. Uh, (laughs) Coexist written out in guns. Oh, my Uh, gosh. Calvin peeing on the word liberal. Mm -hmm. Uh, Then we're like, relax, the alpha males are back. At least Watterson's getting a cut. (laughs) But it's just like, I don't know if the founding fathers had in mind people living in a state of constant rage. (laughs) (laughs) And the maliciousness is what's alien to me, and I guess I just haven't been, like, shit on enough to develop that outward-facing rage for everyone who's not like me. But it never even occurs to me to want to make any policy or voting decision to piss anyone off. Obviously, I gain nothing from it. And it honestly, like breaks my heart in a little way when I just see someone who's obviously their whole political opinion is based on getting a rise out of another person. Well, people what, who, the, what is that? If you listen to AM talk radio in your car all day and you watch Sean <laughs> Hannity and I don't and the only people that are on Fox, you're fed a steady drumbeat of these liberal elites are ruining the country and laughing at you. Right. So they're and, they're striking back. Yeah. Yeah. And it's like, yeah. Fuck you. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Your yeah. you know, your like calm yeah. in the face of their anger yeah. is kind of the point. My They're sister like, yeah. fucking yeah. Cuck. my my sister is angry over the repeal of the death tax. Like when are they gonna repeal the death tax? <laughs> and it's like that will never affect you at all. Yeah. <laughs> when you die, you're gonna get to clean up whatever mess was in the house when you showed up and found everybody dead. That's what you're gonna get. <laughs> oh, you know? Yeah. You're gonna get a Dixie Riddle cup. You know, it's human nature and it will go back. That sort of mantra around the office that this neither is, this side is, is going to win because there will always be another side. Yeah. There's always another group of monkeys that wants the same water hole. You've been doing stand up in America for <laughs> since you were seventeen. And we actually talked to the stand-up Billy Wayne Davis a couple weeks back and we were talking about the idea of like 
stand-ups as like tuning forks where mm-hmm. you're like picking up what yeah. the audience is putting out there. What are the changes you've noticed over? Well, I made a joke about Trump in Portland, Oregon a month ago and a guy threw a bottle of beer at me. <laughs> you know, really? Like, yeah. And I, you get Trump walkouts every show. Snowflakes. Sure. Right. Uh, you know, they're just sensitive snowflakes that can't take the criticism. <laughs> That's true. I, the sensitivity towards the criticism of has never been like this ever. You know, I have jokes about Reagan. People forget before Reagan died and became Jesus that he was right. just this goofy old guy that not everybody loved. Yeah. Called his wife mommy and had a lot of creepy shit about him. Mm-hmm. And, uh, People laughed. You know, everybody laughed at the president. And he just didn't have – that was before you had two completely separate media worlds dedicated to engendering fear and loathing towards the other half of the country. That's how they create the drama that gets you to watch, that gets them to show beer commercials and mm-hmm. truck commercials, which is what it's all about. This has been Spark Notes on 1984. <laughs> <laughs> it's a it's big, 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 big business, and a lot of people yep. make a lot of money. Yeah. But they didn't have Fox News all day. Right. My parents live in this little house with a TV the size of a drive-in movie screen, right. and it's on Fox all day. They're literally engulfed by it. Yeah. My mother loved Bill O'Reilly. I don't know. I haven't talked to her since he got fired. I, sure. I'm yeah. sure it's just, I'm sure it's the, you know, Obama did it. He planted yeah, right. Well, she had to love Bill O'Reilly. He was very forceful about it. Well, Ooh, she, too soon? Too <laughs> soon. He sticks, up for the, yeah. he sticks up for the little guy. Okay. All yep, right. you're right. You're right. Hey, I got to go. You can't even argue with it. Your parents aren't bad people. They aren't, like, evil people or inherently wrong people. They're My living in a different <laughs> reality than mine, and yeah. I don't know yeah. what to do about that. I frequently talk with your parents, so this comes up a lot, <laughs> and I still don't know how to break through and really, like— find some kind of common ground there. <laughs> we were uh, in Montana, and we were going whitewater rafting, and we were on the little van going up to the mouth of the river. And we were the group of people, the strangers. We're sure. all, you know. And I had on a Soylent Corporation <laughs> yeah. from Soylent Green. Right. Mm-hmm. And this old guy sitting across from me goes, you, that's Soylent Green? And I go like, I like, hey, I found an old nerd. And I'm like, <laughs> yeah, it is. And he goes, that's what Obama wants. Uh, oh my gosh! <laughs> I thought high five, high five. I really yeah. expected him to genuinely accuse you of eating pe- yeah. people. Yeah. <laughs> you think that's yeah. all right? Yeah. A coworker of ours did an Alaskan cruise, and they did a tour of these glaciers. And the guy who works for glaciers was <laughs> talking about like this is how big it is right now. It used to be this big, but because of climate change, it's getting worse and worse, and this is a big problem. And one of the guys on the tour was like, nah, I heard that's exaggerated. And just like arguing with the guy, he's like, no, 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 I I live on this piece of ice and I watch it (laughs) die every day. Nah, you're reading the wrong news. He's like, I'm getting through to this one. Yeah, exactly. Okay. Glaciers have an agenda. Yeah. Well, (laughs) somebody on, uh, what is that island with a Moai, uh, Easter Island, you know, Mm -hmm. somebody cut down the last tree. You know, Literally like a Dr. You know, Seuss book. There, was, the last there, 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 gone, there yeah. was a culture on that island, and wow. somebody chopped down the last tree, and they had to leave. Wow. Rest in peace, Lorax, yeah. I suppose. <laughs> really? Can we, can we change the well, name of the country to the Lorax? Yeah. <laughs> Those giant heads are real easy to see now. That's what I like. <laughs> nothing blocking, nothing in the way. It just keeps reminding me to visit the Cambridge Sci-Fi Fantasy <laughs> Bookstore. <laughs> Be sad that he's not there anymore. Just like all the it dogs comes in your favorite all. movies. Yep. Just like all the dogs in your favorite movies. Some multiple times. Eddie from Frasier died twice. Yeah, I think, two dead Eddies. Yeah. Yeah. Did you see the movie the, the, A Dog's Purpose? 
Lots know. of dead dogs for yeah. that, right? Yeah, it was just about, it was like eight dogs dying in a movie. My daughter yeah. came out and said, how'd you like the movie? Eight dogs died! It was the worst <laughs> thing I ever saw! Uh, <laughs> someone saw me and what's that goddamn dog? Marley name? and me. Marley oh, and me. God, was I was like, did... I can beat that. <laughs> Marley One and me dog. was a movie with a cute puppy in yeah. a bow. And I was like, oh, it's a movie about a dog. So I took my kids. Yeah. And because I took my kids, I then had to explain what a miscarriage was. <laughs> I did uh, not know to, that. Yeah, we get to watch a dog's corpse being dropped into a grave. Oh, it was just like... Fuck you! Yeah. yeah. And did you have a dog at that time? Yeah, we've Your always had dogs. We've never, not, we've never not had dogs. We have dogs and cats. So and they know that rabbits now. and everything. <laughs> yeah, no, it's just everything. Oh God, yeah. Oh great, I get to explain why Jennifer Anderson does a miscarriage. Great. <laughs> Jesus Christ. Yeah. Good times. Well, I could talk to you all day. Do you guys have any things that you're like dead? We got uh, Manu, no, Manu Bowl is dead. The Cambridge uh, nerd right. without a name. So is all dead. dogs. All I those. See how this goes. So you take this interview, <laughs> yeah. and then you edit it down over the course of three weeks, yeah, five to eight minutes, and, 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 then, yeah. and then release it in a month. It's like exactly. any normal podcast. Right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you spend five consecutive eight-hour yeah. days well, holding this podcast Brent. into. <laughs> yeah, your podcast is wonderful, by the way. It's not for lack of man hours. Trust me. <laughs> <laughs> I do have a Simpsons question that I tried to work up the courage to ask. I just wanted to know because I was a fan of Grainings, you know, all the way back to Bongo and Life and Hell and yeah. stuff. And I feel like one of the things that's changed over the course of the Simpsons is in the early years it had a very unique pacing and the best way I can describe it is comic strip pacing. Most jokes were composed of two, three, or four elements. You can imagine each one just being a set of comic strips very easily. And then I think it's evolved a lot more into the more the standard sitcom scene where, you know, characters bounce off of each other for, let's say, 90 seconds and blah, blah, blah. That, like, lent itself to so many tricks I didn't see other shows doing. Like, you'll have Simpsons jokes where one character does a setup, and then you cut around the town to have anyone we've ever met do any punchline any writer thought of. Right. That freedom is incredible, and it reminds me so much of comics. Were you aware of that unique pacing as you were creating I wasn't, it? I, no, I'm, and I wasn't there. I didn't start on the show until the 13th season, but okay. I, I know enough about the early season to tell you that whatever did come was a mix of what Matt started with, and, and Sam Simon was really piloting that ship the first two seasons, first three, four seasons. Okay, um, he, interesting. He, he was running the writer's room. And then everything since then, I think it's just been an organic evolution of having writers in there with certain skills, and the show sort of taking a shape of its own. And I think that, if anything, it became faster. They're just yeah. trying to jam more stuff in. Well, it invented that. We have to put a joke everywhere. The most anxiety I've ever had in my life is sitting down in front of a blank computer screen knowing that I'm writing the first page of a Simpsons Of a Simpsons, specifically. Yeah. 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 And this page needs three jokes. That's, yeah, that's And they need to be great because depending (laughs) on how shitty they are, it's going to color everyone's opinion of the other 28 pages. And, yeah, jokes I'm pitching and whatnot. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So it's it's always... Gross. <laughs> um, I know from people like Jake Hogan, Wally Wallardarski, in the very, very beginning of the show, Sam was running the room. But it was conscious. He was going around saying more jokes faster, more jokes. No, I, I just think or it was. Or did it just really evolve? As yeah, like you a, just get 12 funny people in a room and yeah. you want the show to be as funny as you possibly can make it. Jim, specifically, Jim Brooks, is very protective of Marge, where. Um, oh, that's cool to hear. Some of the writers yeah. might not uh, be as big of fans. 
of Marge because they don't think she's funny. Disagree. I can't speak, yep. can't speak for anyone other than myself. You know, Jim Smart. Like, no, the fact Marge's love for Homer is the centerpiece of the show. Yeah, and, absolutely. And uh, it buys us a lot. People like John Schwartzwelder, you just read their script and like jokes within jokes within jokes within jokes. Yeah. And, you just, and you just aspire to be as funny as the funniest guy you read. And right. so you just do more and more and more and more and more. John Schwartzwelder is the only person I've ever walked up to and said, how did you do that? It was in the Africa show mm-hmm. where they went to Africa. And John wrote a first draft of that script. It's the only script I've ever like read for pleasure. Like I just keep <laughs> it in the back of my toilet and like open it up and laugh at something. It was just so brutally funny. People would often come to me and like, I think I could write a Simpsons. I like to write a Simpsons. And I would sure. go like, well, I wouldn't suggest writing a Simpsons because uh, one, they're not going to read a Simpsons spec. And two, no one else is going to care about a Simpsons spec because it has its own laws. So it's not going to help you get a job anywhere. And then if they no, I really want to write one. And then we go, all right, let me give you a script that's sort of like a typical script. And you tell me how you think about it. And then I would always give them that script. Give them the best script ever. Your favorite (laughs) one. It would be literally like, well, you want a musician. Let me give you an album. Tell me if you can do this. Here's Sgt. Pepper. Give that a listen. (laughs) (laughs) It's exactly what I never hear from anybody again. It was just good. The script was just grotesquely brilliant. (laughs) And there's one scene where the cold open Homer starts a bag boy strike at the supermarket. And he's in the supermarket and is arguing over the with the cashier about something and Homer goes, the customer's always right. That's why everybody loves us. <laughs> and then the cash register goes, get out of here. And he picks up the grocery separator, the little stick, mm-hmm. and he goes, I'll leave if I can keep this. <laughs> or have this. I'll leave if I can have this. <laughs> I said, John, I've never asked anybody this before. How did you do that? And I'm only saying this now because John's not there anymore, so it doesn't matter. And he goes, oh, Homer's a golden Retriever. <laughs> We've said that on this show yeah. before. Yeah, I think we that came out in the yeah. Mike Reese conversation yeah. as well. Yeah. yeah, Homer thinks the way Golden Retriever thinks. <laughs> right. Yeah, he's a big dog. Yeah. I've heard a couple theories from different writers of how to think about Homer yeah. that are really that's neat. The, that's the great one. The other one yeah. I love is he knows he can never die. <laughs> but he's not allowed to say it out loud, but he knows. <laughs> like, that? that does, I can't remember, I read it somewhere, that but I'm like, that like doesn't encapsulate him very it, well. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Oh, so you had, you had Mike on the show? <laughs> yeah, yeah, we had Mike's Mike on the show right. earlier. Yeah, it was we just yeah. went all deep and Simpsons fan theories. Yeah, that was yeah. all Simpsons <laughs> all the time. Yeah. You, you've never seen two people getting their heart broken more often than me and Michael. Like, I have this theory about Simpsons. Is this true? And he's like, no. 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 Okay, what about this? I wrote my college thesis on it. No? Okay. Yeah, and I can just, I can cool. see Mike sitting going, that's not it at all. Yeah, that's a great impression. <laughs> well, what I love is how it came together is we do an analysis show after hours, and we did a Simpsons episode, and he reached out and said, this is one of the more coherently, like, best put together Simpsons fan analyses I've ever seen. Oh, wow. So, like, would you like to have me on the show? But, P.S., Every single theory you arrived at, absolutely untrue. (laughs) So I love that he was able to still think the evidence was compelling, knowing that it's all wrong. And then we become that guy in Alaska disagreeing with the park range where he's like, no, I'm pretty sure it's right. I read somewhere. We were like, no, Homer does represent one of the four (laughs) parts of, yeah. You arrive, well, because you arrive at everything accidentally and you arrive at everything by needs of story and then the meaning is put on later. I went to UMass. I didn't go to Harvard. Despite the fact that I worked at The Simpsons. Great Pixie song. Uh, yes, it is. It's educational. 
I had this avant-garde film class and we studied the original King Kong. And there is a scene in the original King Kong where he's in New York and he smashes the railway line above the street yeah. and, railway line and the train crashes. And the teacher said, well, this is using film as symbolism. There was a iron workers strike in New uh, York at the time, and this is Kong as force of nature, straight, literally tearing up the machinery of man and showing the strength of the worker yeah. and everything. And I was year 17, like, okay. Yeah. <laughs> like, you're a grown-up. Could be anything. Yeah. And then years later, I was watching the laser disc <laughs> of King Kong. They had an alternative track. It was an old interview of the guy who wrote the script. Does it, I also own this laser disc. Okay, this so you know bizarre. what I'm talking about. Yeah. <laughs> and, and the guy goes, oh, this is where Kong destroys the L train. You know, I used to live right in that building, and I thought, if I ever write a movie, I'm going to destroy the damn L. Because <laughs> that thing woke me up every morning yep. at 5 o'clock. <laughs> no it had nothing point. to do with anything. It was just... Nor do most things when you're making yeah. a movie about yeah, a right. giant ape. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you aren't attacking it from like, all right, everyone, yeah, let's just right. get real philosophical. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I feel yeah. like that movie in particular... They weren't aware of some of the symbolism that was going on yeah. there. Yeah. 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 Michael and I used to do a sitcom for our site called Agents of Cracked, and commenters <laughs> had paused a moment in the video to call out the time that was on my wristwatch, saying that it was referencing a specific Bible verse that was relevant to what was going on. And we were just like, yep, we did that shit. Uh-huh. <laughs> Wait, when in reality, they're like, it has to be a clue because it's clearly daytime, but his watch says 3.45 a.m. We're like, that's because we have to shoot this show forever. <laughs> we were, it was just happened to be 3.45 a.m. Do they still show The Simpsons where we shoot a missile at the cracked building? Yes. Okay. Yeah. Because I had like the week before 9-11 and then it yeah. went away yeah. for a long time. I have <laughs> made that screen cap my was Facebook that, Was that the boy band before. episode? Yes, it okay. was. Yeah. Yvonne Edniosh. Yvonne Edniosh. Which is, that is a, great, that has a couple of brilliant jokes. I'm sorry. I've always had a tremendous problem with Yvonne Edniosh. And now you're here so I can take you to task yeah. over it. I can answer your question. That is not phonetically. Before you, before you answer the question, I can answer the question. Lazy writing. <laughs> yes. Okay. So done. I don't have to ask. But that has Lieutenant LT Smash in it. Yes. One of my favorite all-time jokes. <laughs> also super liminal advertising. Hey, yeah. join the Navy. <laughs> yeah. and, then, and then the other one, the greatest joke that I've stolen in Sand Against Evil mm. is where he's talking to Lisa. And then he turns and starts staring out the window and starts talking to her. And then you just see her walking across the street. There was a really funny line in that that became like a trope in the writer's room where, oh, yeah, this is my joke. Um, there was I'm a, so funny. <laughs> some boy band comes. In sync, right? Yeah, in sync. Yeah. And they go, uh, we saw your band formation notice in the paper. <laughs> that's right, that's which right. I just thought was a really funny thing that we'd have like a section of the newspapers. <laughs> it was just <laughs> band being formed. Boy band. Your boy band formation notice. Yeah. You saw our BFN? And is, and is it true I heard in passing that Justin Timberlake says words so many times in that episode because he explicitly asked for his image to have him not say word oh, in that's, the episode? That might, that might be it. You can't confirm or deny? I can't confirm or okay. deny. I do know whoever said we saw your information notice in the paper, he read it like this. We saw your information notice in the paper. <laughs> and like, like, he can't not auto-tune right. himself. And yeah. then it was just like, great, just had him do it five times. Just kind of throw it away. Just kind of yeah. like throw it away. Like, like a human, just talks. Yeah. <laughs> okay, no, got it. 
We saw your information notice in the paper. <laughs> wrote, we just like played them all like, it's freakishly the same thing every time. That's great. We saw your information notice in the paper. And for like months, you just walk into the room and just say that. And then three months later, that was the number one hit single for Out of Right. Ivan at Niaj, Lieutenant LT Smash. You brought shame to Star Blitz Productions. <laughs> Based on what we were talking about with being able to read anything into anything, the Simpsons has like predicted 9-11 and, and stuff. And President Trump. <laughs> yeah, and President Trump. Yeah, that's true. But so you said that you guys shot a missile at the cracked building. I believe so. In an episode right before 9-11, yes. cracked was actually in the building that got shut down by the anthrax attacks. And that's what put cracked out of business for like five years before I restarted. Really? Yeah. Bizarre. Jesus. So you guys predicted that? Yeah. Wow. It's a small world filled Caused with it. horrors. <laughs> <laughs> it was based on like the vanity. Some magazine has a building in New York or, okay. or used to. The New to Yorker. It. Yeah, yeah. It, it had a building. Okay. Yeah, because Barr first wants to go visit Mad, and she's yeah. like, I don't know what you expect to be happening, <laughs> but it's just a place of business. And then, yeah. you know, <laughs> Sylvester P. Smythe opens. <laughs> yeah, and then for the crack. <laughs> Get me Mr. Phonebone. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> But not crazy. Because I work at Cracked, of course. I know all these. When Principal Skinner gives him run of the evidence locker at the school and lets him pick any one item, <laughs> there are several Cracked and Crazies in there. And then also when Comic Book Guy says of a Radioactive Man issue, the soda merely splashes off onto lesser comics. It bounces off a of Cracked onto a bongo. Or no, no. It just <laughs> goes directly onto crack. bongos. But in the rack, there's a bunch of Cracked. Uh, uh, That's what it is. We had one thing, and uh, I hope this made it to air. I thought it was the greatest joke ever, and it was not mine. They're going by a newsstand, and the headline of The Onion is, Normal Event Reported as News. (laughs) (laughs) Just great. That's basically it. (laughs) Yeah. That's really brilliant. Anna, what's the thing you say you have, Dana, like a Hollywood story time hour or something? (laughs) Uh Uh-oh. Oh, yeah. Dana's got great stories. Yeah. So I want to hear your best (laughs) behind the scenes Hollywood story because you do. And this is people should listen to the Dana Gould Hour because it is just chock full of like. Is this one one in which I'm involved or is this completely unrelated? You told about Elvis Costello that you're at the (gasps) show for. He's my number one favorite. I am as big a fan of Elvis as every. I I buy everything. I have tickets to see him play Imperial Bedroom. Yeah, yeah. I'm going to be Greek. Yeah, I'm I'm not going to be in town. We act actually have a friend in common. And so I know a little bit about the real world of Elvis Costello. And so I went to see him at the Mayan Theater, I believe on the When I Was Cruel tour. It was the only time I left before the show was over. He would not stop playing. And I was working on The Simpsons at the time. I was married at the time, and, I, and we had a babysitter. For sure. And, like, and we're just like, we started just like, I, I, we got to go. Because the babysitter had to go. And so I, the next day, I, or two days later, I called our mutual friend. And I was saying, the show was amazing. I have to think he just would not get off. And he's like, oh, yeah, no, I know I wouldn't get off. Because it was right when he was getting divorced from Carter Rorden. The rumor is Carter Rorden had seen the emails that he'd been sending to Diana Krall. Oh. And she was waiting to confront him on the tour bus. <laughs> <laughs> and he thought he could just play it out. Yeah, he I literally just... like, let's do the wreck of the Edmund Fitzgerald again. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> is there uh, awesome. any uh, birthdays? Anyone have a birthday? Yeah, <laughs> <it was> really... <laughs> and I, 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 think, I, I think it was like, I don't know what happened actually, but that is what I heard, that it was basically wow. like, when I'm done here, yeah. I have to go talk to the woman I'm divorcing. <laughs> and when <laughs> I was 
was cruel. When I was cruel, the title track, the beat is made of a sample of her voice. So he's listening to his wife's voice <laughs> repeat over and over, <laughs> anticipating. That's yeah. rough. But she's gone on to have a great little career. Yeah. I don't want anybody angry at me. Yeah, if you're Elvis Costello and you're listening to the Cracked Podcast. <laughs> mm-hmm. All right. But uh, the other one was I was uh, – the reason that I ended up meeting the guy that were the stocking law was my manager used to share an office with Bob Dylan's manager. You know, you Very had, stockable. You had yeah. access to – if I have a problem with this, go to this guy. Like, it right, was like yeah. – you know, it's like I need to go to the dentist at 2 o'clock in the morning on Christmas Eve. Go to this guy. <laughs> uh, I, I guess it's a sign of success, but I don't know that I want a stalking guy. Yeah. <laughs> like, uh, I, yeah. I, I can deal with this. This yeah. is okay. I got a guy. Yeah. So Dylan was playing at the Hollywood Bowl with Santana. I went to see it with uh, Saturday Night Live's Tishon Shannon. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. Because I was with Dylan's management company, and right. I, we got to go backstage. Nice. My friend who worked in the office said, uh, oh, hey, Dana, Elvis is here. Do you want to meet him? <laughs> yes, I want to meet him. Yeah. yeah, my voice went nine now. Yeah, I want to meet him. Okay, So he introduces me to this woman who at the time was Elvis's agent, this mm-hmm. tiny little British woman. She was, oh, wonderful, come with me. We go back through the labyrinthian corridors of the Hollywood Bowl. <laughs> And we go into this room where Elvis is talking to about 20 people, and they are surrounding him in like a half circle. Protective wall. Yes, and he is at the center of it. And this woman has me by the arm, and she knifes her way into the circle and drags me into the middle of the circle and says, and interrupts him. She goes, Elvis, you have a fan who wants to meet you. (laughs) Oh, God. Dana Gould. An actor here in Hollywood. <laughs> oh, no, and the worst possible introduction. He has a screenplay he'd like you to yeah. read. <laughs> and I was I literally like, I just like. I'm I, so sorry. I, I thought, like, I thought, I am shit. <laughs> and Cotter Warden was looking at me as if I was shit. I did, like, my, I'm so sorry. I, 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 I had the opportunity to meet you and I wanted to take it, but I really didn't mean to interrupt you. And I just, like, <laughs> muttered my way out. And, like, the circle, like, closed behind me and I kind of had to crawl out through someone's legs. And uh, it, was, it was just ghastly. I did meet him later when he did The Simpsons and I had a nice exchange with him. So I yeah. was... Did he remember you from yeah. the awkwardness? I know who he you did, are. yeah. <laughs> right. I remember. I knew exactly. What, I remember what he was wearing. Yeah, and, and it was just. Like, I was like, please don't say anything. Please don't say anything. <laughs> Another great episode. Who wants to play the bass? <laughs> the Rockapalooza one. Maybe the guitar is your thing. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Two things in that episode. Mike Scully and George Meyer wrote that episode. I love Mick Jagger going, Simpson! <laughs> <laughs> and then Keith Richards just looking into the camera going, I've got to put it in my storm windows. Winter's coming. Then <laughs> 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 Mick Jagger and Keith Richards live next door to each other in very <laughs> modest houses, and then Keith Richards puts in his own storm his own windows. Storm yeah. windows. <laughs> it's amazing. It it's is. amazing. Dan, is there anything you want to plug? Uh, yes. If you like podcasts, try mine out. It's called The Danny Gould Hour. There's only one a month, but it's 11 hours long. And Stand Against Evil on uh, IFC comes Absolutely. this fall. Great. I'm getting ready to go to Atlanta to shoot season two. They shoot all horror shows in Atlanta. Everything, yeah. I'm actually very good friends with the Walking Dead people. Really? And I was before the Walking Dead. Greg Nicotero and the KNB yeah. team are just my friends. He I've was a guest on a recent show. Yeah, I've known yeah. him. For, I've known him forever, and uh, 
So it's weird. Like I don't get to see him on trip, but I go to Atlanta and I get to hang out with my friends <laughs> from LA. <laughs> yeah. As low level people in this industry, <laughs> I, I largely see my friends when we're making the thing. Right? Yeah. Yeah. When you see you each other. Yeah. yeah. Michael yeah. and I haven't talked off mic for years. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, but it is funny. It's like I don't see him when he's here, but hey, we're both in Atlanta. Let's go hang out. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for doing this. Oh, this, my pleasure. This uh, was fun. A blast. Thank you. Yeah, thank you, sir. Thanks. <laughs> Ivan at Niage. <laughs> Ivan at Niage, indeed. That was fun, right? For more on narcissism, go back and check out the episode I did with Jason about narcissism uh, or any episode I've done with Soren on any subject because Soren's a narcissist. You get it? You burnt, Soren. A couple more anecdotes from the set of Stanley Kubrick movies that I wanted to get to but didn't want to waste our Dana Gould time on. Apparently for the scene in 2001 that takes place on the moon, he insisted that all of the equipment on screen be built to actually work on the moon. And on the set of Dr. Strangelove, the B-52 bomber that he built as a set for the movie was described by U.S. Air Force personnel as, quote, absolutely correct, which they weren't too thrilled about since the B-52 was still classified at that point. How many people had to die so that Kubrick could get those B-52 blueprints. We'll never know. And for the scenes in the war room with the president and all the generals sitting around, he decided that the top of the table they're all sitting around should be that sort of green felt covering you see on card tables because he wanted the metaphor to be clear that they were playing a game of poker for the fate of the world. And he insisted on this and made them change it when he came to set and the green wasn't the right color, didn't look like the green on poker tables. And of course, the movie was in black and white. But Kubrick, I guess, knew the actors would know and the camera would be able to tell somehow. Anyways, that's it. Thanks to Dana Gould for talking with us. And thanks to our wonderful booker, Anna, who joined us at the end there, who put us in touch with Dana in the first place and who knew that we would be a good mix. Anna is the best. Anna Hosny. I don't think I've ever said her last name in front of her. Hosny? I'm probably mispronouncing it. Sorry, Anna. All right, on to some quick footnotes. We're going to link off to the Cracked Podcast about narcissism. We'll link off to the Cracked Podcast about Simpsons Easter eggs that we referred to in our conversation with Dana. We'll link off to the Dana Gould Hour, the whole episode archive. I highly recommend it. We'll link off to the page for IFC's Stand Against Evil, which Dana is about to go into season two production on. We'll link off to the article and podcast page for the academic origins of China's one-child policy. That's from Freakonomics, not Radiolab, but it's a really interesting listen. We'll link off to the Peter Doggett book, You Never Give Me Your Money, The Beatles After the Breakup. For some reason, Abbey Road songs keep coming up in my life. We had a pitch about how something, the George Harrison song that is second on Abbey Road, was written about George Harrison's wife at the time. I think it's Patty Boyd. And Layla was also written about her. There are like 20 different songs written about the same woman. And we'll link off to a documentary called The Making of Dr. Strangelove. And that's going to do it. 
thanks to Daniel and Michael for showing up and being funny as always. Thanks again to Dana and Anna. And as always, thanks to Engineer Brett for putting the episode together. You can follow him at Brett, R-A-D-E-R. You can follow me at Jack underscore O-B-R-I-E-N. And we'll be back next week with more podcast. Talk to you guys then. Thanks again to Audible and their new show, Ponzi Supernova, the six-part Audible original series that sheds new light on Bernie Madoff and the biggest Ponzi scheme in history. Listen to Ponzi Supernova for free on Audible or wherever you get podcasts. Cry, baby, cry. Hi, I'm Sarah Thayer. And I'm Susan Orlean. We're the hosts of Cry Babies, the show where great writers, comedians, musicians, and more tell us what makes them cry. In a good way. The healthy kind of crying. Oh, crying is healthy, Susan. I agree. <laughs> On Cry Babies, you'll hear Mara Wilson explaining why she was so affected when Homer Simpson met his mom. Or Mike Doty playing his favorite Magnetic Fields tearjerker. Or comedian Kyle Kinane telling us about finding catharsis at an LCD sound system show. Listen to all these wonderful people and more on Crybabies, an Apple podcast, Stitcher, or your favorite podcast app. This has been an Earwolf production. Executive produced by Scott Ackerman, Chris Bannon, and Colin Anderson. For more information and content, visit Earwolf.com. 